there were 19 other teenaged girls from my town on the military bus that took us to a nearby camp to be examined by German doctors. Once we were declared healthy, SS soldiers escorted us to a waiting train and crammed us into a cattle car. Then, with a clanging jolt, the train began to roll us away from all that we loved so dearly to our new destination, Germany. We're hearing music from the Holocaust Cantata created by Donald McCullough, drawing on texts and tunes from archival collections of words of prisoners of the camp, as well as melodies gathered from those who survived and from those who did not. McCullough's work is made up of seven songs, and this one, titled The Train, is at the center. Three songs come before it, and three follow. The train is at the heart of the cantata in many senses, not just because of its place in the piece, but because it is a love song, because it is so intimate, so very personal. Eyes last meet, gazing, hands gesture, waving, unspoken, silent sorrow, running still beside the train in fool's futility. Farewell, my love. Remember me. Each of the other songs is profoundly heartbreaking, and yet it is this one song that centers on two individuals, even though we don't know their names. So it is with the body of work created by photographer Michael Mirabito. Each image is chilling, dismaying, frightening in its own way, but it is the faces of those who perished in the Holocaust that, we might say, changed Mirabito deeply. 
As we'll learn, he spent so much time with these individuals through their images that he feels he's gotten to know them, as if he could hear them cry as the singer in this song, Remember Me. Voices, a Holocaust remembrance, a series of photo and caustic images and works by Michael Mirabito, is the current exhibition at the Widman Art Gallery at King's College in Wilkes-Barre, now through January 25th. Michael Mirabito, Professor Emeritus in the Department of Communications at Marywood University, paid a visit to the WVIA studios to talk with us about his photographic series. I was fortunate when I was at Marywood in my Department of Communication at that point. Uh, one of my colleagues and friend, Ernie Mangoni, and I were approached by Tova Weiss. She was in charge of the Education Resource Center at the Scranton JCC, and Marywood used to sponsor with them the high school Holocaust Symposium every year. They brought down survivors and camp liberators to speak to students. And so she asked us one day if they could bring in you know, some of these people for an interview to get them on tape, and we agreed, and that started that whole process. And, you know, we met some amazing people. One was a, a little girl who was on the St. Louis. That was the ship, so-called Ship of Fools that was sent back. We met two men who didn't know each other before they had met at a commemorative gathering. I think it was at the Holocaust Museum where they had their numbers. They saw they were sequential. So they met each other at that. So we had some amazing people. And that started my interest. And I love history. History, even though I did communications and technology, history has always been my first love. And so that and photography and this area sort of got me interested in it. And I was drawn for some reason, I think because the Holocaust initially, just the scale of what happened. And people let it happen. The United States, for example, sent the ship back wouldn't bring him in from Cuba what was going on in other countries and then that sort of dovetailed into you know what's going on in our own country let's say so I went to Trail of Tears I went to North Dakota during the North Dakota pipe protest to shoot that because there were big issues where Native American lands and graves and sacred lands are being trespassed and it violated the Laramie Treaty I was a chance to go to Armenia to visit that genocide, which many countries, including Turkey, declared it wasn't a genocide. Ernie and I had a chance to go. One of our students was in Kurdistan. So we had a chance to go to Kurdistan to do a couple, some classes, like photography, videography classes, but also to look at that genocide, which again, some people said never really happened. And so that sort of transported me forward into looking into these areas, because I thought they needed to be. Because I read somewhere from a historian, uh, it was about the Holocaust, said that she was someplace in Germany and she saw a photographer taking pretty pictures of graves. And it's not just pretty pictures. You're preserving memories. You're preserving what happened because things change over time. Like Auschwitz looks nothing like it did back in a, in a, in a day. And I'm sure 50 years from now, it's going to even be totally different than it is right now. And it's also getting people involved in it to, to keep the memory alive. So hopefully, you know, as the saying goes, something like this won't happen again. So I think that's what impels me more than anything else. And it's interesting that you say the interest that you have began with actually being 
in the presence of people who were somehow part of the story, survivors Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in that way. And we get to see people in your exhibition and pictures. We see a range of images, but many faces. Right. And I was lucky, 2017, I was able to go to Yad Vashem. They had an educator's symposium out of Seton Hill in Pittsburgh. And I was part of that group. It was a three-week process, three-week, and we went different places, different sites, but we also had access to Yad Vashem. And in Yad Vashem, which is the memorial to Holocaust victims, there's something called the Hall of Names. And it's a room with a a large cone-shaped object in the center of it. And around the cone are different pictures of survivors. The idea is to collect these one-page documents from friends, families, um, anyone else who knew someone who died during the Holocaust who might not be remembered so they would be remembered. And so they started collecting these individual sheets years ago, and they're still in the process of doing that. And this is that commemorative area. And surrounding this, you'll see the records where the original paper sheets were, even though it's now computerized. But as part of this process, I think there are six or 900 individual photographs, I think they're sepia-toned with plexiglass. And so I wanted to photograph that. So I got permission to do so, got the badge, walked in. No one was there. I was very lucky. Started to take some pictures. Of course, the guard came over and said, you can't do that. I showed, I have a badge. I have permission to do it. I saw him walk over to another guard. And so I said, you know, it's going to happen within like five minutes. So I just started shooting. Wide shots, close-ups, medium shots, just boom, 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 boom. Literally five minutes later, the other guard did come. I had to leave. But what happened is, if you look at even the Yad Vashem website at this Hall of Names, you'll see lines of light go through the pictures in a wide angle shot. I think it's just the way it's constructed, the plexiglass and the light. And so I didn't have a chance to check on that when I was shooting it, didn't have time. So when I got home, I had quarter panels looked fine, close-ups looked fine, but I really wanted this wide angle shot. And you know, the, the lines ran through people's faces, the whole thing, and I tried working on it four or five times and I gave up. And then once I said, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually do it, so what I did was I found the quarter panels of this, cut out each individual picture using Photoshop, and then pasted them exactly where the other pictures were and did that with all the pictures that needed to be replaced. It also has called parts of the page of testimony. That's, that's the information sheets about the people. So it took well many, many hours to do this, but in the process of doing it, you got to know the people in a sense. You recognize, as you were saying, you recognize the faces. Children, mothers, people getting married, old men, old women. They look like, you know, I told my wife, one of the older women looked like my great-grandmother, the pictures I've, I've seen. And so you become personally connected with these people. And that's, I think, that's why that picture is the most important to me and for me. And you also are haunted by the children, of course. Mm-hmm. And you tell us about some of the experiences at Terracine. Right. Uh, they were taught by an imprisoned artist, which was an amazing thing. All this was done in, in secret, where kids in this, it's a, it's a concentration camp, even though it's a town, and it's supposed to, you know, Germans represented it as the ideal Jewish town we built for the Jews, right? And so she taught them how to draw, and the goal was to break their bonds, in a sense, with their imaginations. 
and there were also adult artists. I mean, there was just, it was a collection of, as you said, artists, musicians. And the sad thing about is the exhibit you'll see with the different drawings that are displayed by artists and such. At the bottom, a lot of them say, you know, sent to Auschwitz, sent to Auschwitz, sent to Auschwitz. So some people survived, but a lot of people also sent to Auschwitz to, um, to be murdered. In that particular camp, isn't there an image that you have of fake sinks going to that extent to try to fool the outside world? Yeah, they actually produced a movie, directed a movie, that showed, again, the ideal Jewish town where kids were taking naps, eating fruit, everyone was happy, they were doing plays. And so what happened was there was an international Red Cross delegation went to Terezin, I think it was to look at a bunch of the Danish citizens who were, who were there. Uh, and so when they went there, the Germans built these false sinks to make believe, look at the, the facilities they even have. So yeah, it was an extraordinary extent. And, and the real sad part is that in order to make the town Terezin look less full of people, crowded, they sent thousands of people to Auschwitz to, to, to reduce the number of people there. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's heart-rendering. And if we think about sinks, you also have that image of the shaving brushes. Yes, there were some Auschwitz. It was just, it hit me as a very personal item, a personal, that you used every day, a comb to comb your hair or something to shave with or brush when you are shaving. And what happened, I showed this picture once before in a, in a prior show, and a, a man came walking up to me holding a brush, and he said his grandfather had given him this brush, he was from Germany, and that if his grandfather had not left Germany, this brush might have been in that picture, which is the personal connection. And I think that's the power of photography and, and, and videography, that you make these type of connections you do it through reading, but you also do it visually, too. You use your considerable photographic skills to make these images even more tactile. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been, I've been using something called photoencaustic. It's, it's photography, but you use encaustic wax, encaustic medium with it. It's a combination of beeswax and damar or damar resin. And essentially, you can transfer a, a photo to a piece of wood or other object as a way to do a transfer, or I do it the easy way, to be honest. I just I glue it to the board. Then you heat the wax up, and you coat the photo, let's say, and then you use a heat gun to let it soak in. Another layer, heat gun. So in a sense, you're building up these layers of wax. And what that does is, if you just use it like that, the wax creates an incredible luminosity, and you can almost look through it to see the picture. It's almost like a 3D effect. Or it gives you a chance to rip and create textures. And that's what happened when I first was doing this. I was doing a shot from Auschwitz. It's called Looking Out of a Window. And I tried it three times. It kept on buckling. And the third time I said, let me try see if I can cut the bubble to see if it would. And of course it didn't work. And I thought, wow, maybe I could just rip it. Because that's how you know you feel when you see this. And I ripped it. And then that sort of like opened up this whole new avenue for me by using almost 3D structures incorporated in it to I think more accurately reflect what you thought when you took a picture, when I took the picture. And you also have done something 
layered like to create a sense, haven't you, of Kristallnacht? Right, yes. It allows you to also, it makes paper opaque, and, and so different types of paper to different degrees. And so one thing I did was yeah, the Kristallnacht, which was a picture of a, from Auschwitz. It was um, barbed wire in a frame, and I just basically beat the hell out of a frame and, and the glass to replicate that sense. And in another one I did was from Fasoli, which was an Italian camp where Levi, Primo Levi, was, was sent to amongst other people in Italy. And so I had a map of that and I had him overlaid on top of that. Some of his words from If This Is a Man, which is an amazingly powerful book and which again communicated both ideas and another one the laws nuremberg laws on the bottom with some brushes on top of that so to create the linkage between those different events one led to another the laws led to death in that case and you do use words either words like the babayar oh it's amazing it's an amazing poem the poet was sort of as a protest piece and also a memorial piece for those who were killed above you and when i read it it was just one of those words that just struck me that just it's like an arrow shot at you and i wanted to reflect that as part of this process and yet there are also the memorial stones the communities Mm -hmm. the places where people have been taken from and right like a triblinka it's an it's an amazing monument it's it's I think it's like it's 10,000 stones with the names of the villages from which people were sent to the camp and were were, were murdered. Treblinka was a murdering camp. The other camps were more, some of them were murder and work camps, but Treblinka was strictly a killing camp. How do you endure a long project like this with such deep, dark realities? But I, th- I think part of, the re- part of the way is that it's... For some reason, the Holocaust speaks to me more than other events. I mean, obviously, you know, so I went to Armenia, I went to Kurdistan. I would love, as part of my work, to have gone to other places, but I had some injuries over the last couple of years, so that's sort of halted. But I think just the enormity of the Holocaust and the individual faces that I've had, you know, worked with, meeting the people, as you said, you know, survivors, camp liberators, has made it more real to me than other other events. My dad was a World War II vet, so that also ties in as well. So, you know, I think you do it because you want to do it, because it's important for you to do it. Morally, it's the right thing to do. Ethically, it's the right thing to do. And it's sort of become the focus, it has become the focus of my work at this point. Then you continue? Yes, Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I think the next phase is I want to extend what I've done with this particular one and also some other areas as well. I did some work like the Black Lives Matter March. I did some photo and caustic works with that. I would like to extend. And I've also been trying using a CNC, which is a computer controlled, like a router type of machine to turn a photograph into an engraving. So I, I want to also bring it to other media as well to see. And to match them and to see how they complement each other. So what do you think now 
today when we get a chance to go to King's and see this work that you've done and the headlines? Uh, it's, 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 what I feel is that we haven't, we've, we think we've advanced so far, but we've advanced so little. The, the this death and destruction continues unabated. And I think that's why my, my sense of knowing history is important because you can see what happened then is happening now. And so, you know, people of goodwill, as the old saying goes, have to get together, work with each other to try to stop this. And we're reminded, we can't but be reminded when we are confronted. And these are images intended to confront us, yes, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's, it's challenging to work on them, but it's also unbelievably gratifying in that it also communicates, I think, better than any work I've done, what I think and what I believe in and what's important to me. And for that, and any good work you do is something you have to believe in yourself. Otherwise, it's not going to work. How long can we see it? It's at King's Woodman Gallery. It closes on the 25th of January. Do you have a website where we can go to find out more about your work? Yeah, you? it's the tour, T-H-E-T-O-R dot smug mug. S-M-U-G-M-U-G dot com. Photographer Michael Mirabito, Professor Emeritus in the Department of Communications at Marywood University in Scranton, speaking with us about his work in conjunction with the current exhibition at the Whitman Art Gallery at King's College in Wilkes-Barre, Voices, a Holocaust Remembrance, a series of photo and caustic images and works by Michael Mirabito. The gallery is located at 133 North Franklin Street in Wilkes-Barre at King's College on the campus, and again, it runs through January 25th. For more information about Michael Mirabito and his work, the website is thetor, T-H-E-T-O-R, dot smug mug, and that's the, T-H-E-T-O-R, dot smug mug, and we might guess that's the rock formation, perhaps at Glastonbury, thetor, dot smug mug. Michael Mirabito, his name is spelled M-I-R-A-B-I-T-O. 